Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, beginning in verse 21. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that we should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help, so let us begin with some prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We need your spirit to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to understand, to be changed by it. We ask for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we started uh, last week in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, and it was the beginning of the discourse as Jesus is comforting his disciples before he ultimately goes to the cross and dies. He's trying to give them the thing that they need to understand, to be able to endure the uncertain times that lie ahead. And last week we saw Jesus wash his disciples' feet, and there was this imagery that he's the one who makes them clean, and he... Throughout that verse, uh, throughout our verses last week, uh, continued to allude to the idea that one of them was not clean. Indeed, one of them was a betrayer, and Jesus picks that up. We didn't spend a lot of time last week talking about that, but it really is a big part of our passage today. And so we're going to carry forward some of our passage from last week as we think about what we have before us. But before we get into the neat, the nitty gritty of this passage. We need to remember that at the beginning of chapter 13, it was introduced that Jesus loved his disciples even to the end. 
And here we have this commandment, this new commandment, though you might notice it doesn't seem all that new, that we ought to love one another just as Christ has loved us. It is going to be the thing that will mark us out as different than other people. That's how people will know who Jesus' disciples are, is that they love one another. So this theme of love is throughout here. It was one of the displays as Jesus took uh, from the seat of honor into the seat of a servant to humiliate himself and wash the disciples' feet last week. It was an act of his love. And so it's no surprise that this imagery of love continues on and is really encapsulated in this new commandment. But I want us to begin by asking a question of ourselves. Where did you learn how to love? When you think of love, you might think of lots of different things. Our, you know, we got love stories and romantic comedies. You have the love of parents for their children, all sorts of things, even things as trivial as our love for Taco Bell or whatever our favorite food might be. But we have all come to learn what it means to love and to be loved through a variety of things in our lives. Most importantly is often our origin stories, the, the houses we grew up in, the, the way in which our parents loved us, the way in which we saw our grandparents love us or our parents love one another. Those are usually the most formative ways in which we learn love, and too often the case is that those aren't great examples. In fact, we may have grown up in a situation where we have such a skewed view of love because those stories in our lives are not very loving. We didn't see the type of love that maybe is personified in a movie or a book in our homes. And so Christ here, as he is calling us to this new commandment, is not only telling us to love in some generic way, some way that we have grappled with in our own lives, but it's also set for us the foundation of what our love ought to look like. He says that we ought to love one another just as he has loved us. The imagery of love throughout Scripture is very prevalent. Uh, in the New Testament alone, there are over 220 verses that mention love. Now, they might not all be positive verses. And in the whole Bible, there's over 650 verses that mention love. And the New Testament church, especially after Christ had uh, ascended into heaven and, and they began to be identified as this particular people in the first century, they were marked out by the way in which they loved one another. Unexpected love in a society where um, it was very divided by class and by gender and all of the things that you would expect in most societies, these people were transcending those categories and instead were loving the unlovable, breaking the taboos of the time. Rich and poor together, slave and free, Jew and Greek. It was well attested in the ancient world that many people saw this and they thought it was very weird. 
In fact, they had these love feasts, agape feasts, and oftentimes people thought they were doing inappropriate things because the Christians were kind of weird. They were calling each other brother and sister when they had no real blood relation. And so this new commandment to love really begs the question, what is love? What does Christ's love look like? What is being displayed in this passage and in this whole account with Jesus and his disciples that shows us what his love is like, that we might be able to imitate it? Well, we've already begun down the road that my first point is that Christian love must be rooted in God's love, God's example of love. The gospel writer here, John, in one of his letters says this uh, in chapter 4. So we have come to know and believe that the love of, believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is also, where he is, also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. But here is the key verse I want us to remember. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Jesus' commandment here is not one that's arbitrary, one that's, uh, you know, apart from his lived reality. We love because God loved us first. The disciples are called to love because they are people who have been loved so well. In fact, John goes on in this passage to go on and say, If you hate your brother and say, I love God, you are a liar. Because if you've seen God, if you've experienced his love, then you can have no hatred for your brother. Even our assurance of pardon today from Romans chapter 5 talks about this. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. God's love, God's work, his spirit at work in our hearts is the foundation for what it means to love in this new way. It's what makes this commandment new. We've experienced love in a more full way. Right? This commandment isn't you know, new to Scripture. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not new in the sense that there's a call to love, but what's new is the foundation that Christ has shown. That in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts, and that includes God's love. Okay, so if God's love is our foundation, what is his love like? In order to see the lavishness of Christ's love for his disciples, we need to look especially at this scene with Judas. Jesus knew full well, we've heard many times now in John's Gospel, that he knew Judas was going to be the betrayer. He chose him, and he knows him, and he's the unclean one. And yet, 
Christ continues to show this great love to him. Christ's love is unconditional. Jesus didn't go up and wash all of the disciples' feet, and when he got to Judas, said, Yeah, right. You're the betrayer. I'm not going to wash your feet, Judas. Instead, I can't imagine the interchange that those two might have had. Judas full knowing what he was going to do, and Jesus knowing full well what Judas was going to do, and yet receiving this act of love. But it carries forward as we look at this scene, and Jesus says that there is one that's going to betray them, and you have all these disciples, and they don't know who it's going to be. And if you ever look at medieval and uh, ancient art of the the old uh, the the Last Supper, right? If you look at the picture of Judas, he looks like this evil, you know, humbug type of guy. But that is not the reality of what's going on here. The disciples didn't think it was Judas. In fact, in another account, they go to Jesus and say, "Is it I, Lord?" In fact. Judas would probably have been the least likely candidate in their minds as he was the treasurer. He had the money. And in this scene, we see something that's important for us to not overlook. Now, we've talked about this before, but I want to remind you, they are reclined at table. And so that would have meant they had their left arm up and there would have been a table kind of around in a U so they could eat with the right hand. And so there would have been lying next to each other and there would have been two places of honor around the guest of, or the host, which of course in this scene is Jesus. So Jesus is here in the center, and we're told that John was next to him, and Peter asks John to ask Jesus what's going on. And so, you know, John would have laid back and said, Hey, Jesus, who is it? Apparently, Jesus only responds quietly to John and tells him that it's the one who's going to receive this morsel from his hand after he's dipped it in you know, what, olive oil or whatever it is that they have, some jam on the table in their feast. And Judas is close enough that Jesus can hand it to him. And so we must assume that Judas is the one who is right behind Jesus as they are reclined at table. It's as if Jesus has come to this meal and has said to Judas and to John, come and sit in my places of honor. And so Judas is exalted to a place of honor, a privileged place to be next to Jesus during this Passover feast. But even this act of giving a morsel for someone's plate is particularly foreign to our context but carries with it a great sense of love in the ancient world. The host of a meal like this, to take bread from his own plate and to to dip it for a guest and then to give it to them would have been an act of great honor and love. In fact, one of the other places we see this in the Old Testament is the story of Ruth and Boaz. If you're not familiar... Ruth is this uh, alien who comes and lives in uh, the, the people of, with the people of Israel, and Boaz welcomes her to come and, and to be in the field to harvest, and he invites her into the meal, and he says, come and eat this bread that has been dipped. And what do you know? Boaz and Ruth end up getting married. 
this act of love, this act of honor continues to go forth. And Judas is put in the highest place of honor. He is the one who receives that choice piece of bread that has been dipped from the hand of Christ himself. Jesus loved Judas even though he knew he was the betrayer. In fact, you can almost look at this scene and think that there was nothing else Jesus could have done in an earthly sense to make Judas change his mind. He's washed his feet. He's put him in the place of honor. He's even given him this honor bite. And yet it only hardens Judas more. And we're actually told that as he eats this morsel, Satan enters into him. The deed is done. And so Jesus' love is not just for those who honor and obey him, those who ultimately stay with him to the end, those who are perfect, but even to those who Jesus himself knows are wicked. Jesus does not withhold his love. In Romans chapter 12, Paul picks up some of this same uh, exhortation. He says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's an odd juxtaposition in this exhortation to not repay evil for evil, not to curse, but to bless. And it has these different effects. And really, it's the call to leave it in God's hands. Remember, Jesus many times has said, I have not come into the world to judge the world, but to save it. Because the judgment is already there. And they will be judged by the words that Jesus has spoken. But Jesus comes and he displays great love. He loves unconditionally. And that love will either transform people or it will actually cause them to be more hardened like Judas. And it will be a judgment against them. But it's not for us to execute judgment. It is for us to love. So if God's love is unconditional, if Jesus loves even those who will betray him, what else do we know about his love? Well, the beginning of our chapter, remember, Jesus loved his disciples well, even to the end. It reminds me of this passage that you may be familiar with if you've ever gone to a wedding. It maybe was written on the bulletin or said during the service. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The love chapter. 
which doesn't have a lot to do with marriage, by the way. But it does have a lot to do with love. Indeed, that is part of our marriages, but it is for all of life. Paul reminds us this. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Think of the disciples. In fact, one of the other accounts as this is happening. They were arguing about which one of them is greater. <laughs> That's often a conversation that the disciples have. If you're more eloquent, but you don't have love, you're just a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If we have all of our doctrines straight, if we're the most educated person in our church, if we are able to debate non-believing people on the issues of the day and win the argument, but we don't have love, Paul says, we are nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I'm deliver up my body to be burned, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. We can be involved in churches and give of our resources and spend our whole lives dutifully following the commandments of God, and yet if we don't have love, it's for nothing. Love is the most foundational aspect of the Christian life. It is the thing that compelled God to send his son into the world. Love is patient and kind. Right? So that means it's not unkind and impatient. Love does not envy or boast. That means it's humble. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way, and yet we see Jesus here, not insisting on his own way, but being our shepherd who leads us, beyond, leads us to the still waters. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. Christ's love for his people, for his disciples here, never ends. We have this story of Judas, and Jesus loved him to the end. When we see this ending, and, and, Jesus, uh, and Judas walks out and says, and it was night. Of course, John is telling us what time of day it is, but there's much greater... Uh, you know, illusion going on here. Remember, one of the key themes in John's gospel is light and darkness. It's as if Judas has now walked out and it is done. He is walking into the darkness, never to return. He has walked away from the light of the world. Even though he loved him to the very end, the last act of Jesus was this great act of love. We see a similar person rise up after Judas, who is also a denier, a betrayer even. It's 
the end of our passage today. Simon Peter, he doesn't understand what's going on, where Jesus is going to go, why he can't follow after him. Remember, the disciples never seem to understand what's going to happen next, even though Jesus tells them again and again, and Peter, in particular, likes to talk and say things that are often foolish. Peter has love, but he also thinks he knows it all. I will lay down my life for you, is what Peter says to Jesus. I will follow you. I will even lay down my life for you. And yet in this confession, we see, of course, Jesus tell him that's obviously not true. Perhaps we can more closely see ourselves wanting to love with the love that God shows for us. The great irony in this statement is he doesn't really understand what Jesus is going to do, but Jesus is the one who's going to lay down his life for him. And ultimately, loving his disciples to the end is continuing on in this great mission that he is headed to at the cross. Because Jesus' love is not merely one of gestures or one of nice words, but is one of action, one of redemption, one in which Christ does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will deny me three times. And, of course, we know that's what happens. And in that scene, as Peter is denying Jesus, he catches Jesus' eye. And I can only imagine the shame that Peter would have felt having made this profession and then seeing it come to pass that he did deny his Lord. And yet Christ promises here that he would love his disciples to the end, to continue on this great example of God's love for his people. Unlike Judas, who went out and it was night, Peter came back. Peter trusted in the love of Christ and what he had done for him and was restored. As God's love was not over for him. As we think about our own lives and the way in which we are called to love, I look at this commandment and I think, how impossible is that for us? That people around the world, people in our city will say, wow, that church is full of people who love each other. How far are we away from that as a reality in our church and in the church more broadly? And so we can read these passages and we can beat ourselves up about it. We can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and say, okay, I'm going to be more kind and I'm going to be more patient and I'm not going to be envious or boast and I'm going to let other people, uh, you know, lead the way. I'm not going to insist on my own way. We become legalists. We're going to try harder. But that's not the remedy to our problem. The remedy to our problem is that we have not fully comprehended God's love for us. 
There's this parable that Jesus tells of the, uh, these unforgiving servant, is what it's often referred to as, where a man who had a great debt was put in prison because he couldn't pay it, and he begged for mercy. This great debt. And the person he owed the money to canceled the debt. And when he gets out, he goes and he finds somebody that owed him far less. And he demanded the man pay him. And when the man who had forgiven the debt found out, well, he was enraged, of course, because he had given this man such a gift. And yet it didn't have the outflow that he would show the same kindness to those who had wronged him. And so it is for us. If we want to love more, what we need to do is not try harder, but what we need to do is understand more deeply the love that God has for us. When we think about those passages about uh, what love is like, you can almost equate it with humility. How often God's people fail, and then how often we think that we are greater than those around us. When we view ourselves as ones who have more knowledge, are more well-spoken. All of the things that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it makes us unable to love others because they are below us. But when we see ourselves as recipients of grace and mercy that we do not deserve, Forgiveness that we do not deserve. When we confess with our lips that somebody had to die. In fact, somebody loved us so much that he was willing to die for us. How petty does our love and disdain for other people look? If we want to learn to love more deeply... We must reflect on our own unworthiness of the love that God has shown to us. We, like Peter, unworthy to receive love. We, like Judas, unworthy to be seated in a place of honor. And yet, Christ shows his love. When we see our unworthiness, when we see his great love for us, it will overflow into our lives. And God has poured out his love into our hearts by giving us his Holy Spirit to bear witness to the love that God has for us, to remind us of his love. May he give us the grace to be people who are known by our love. It's a miraculous thought to think that that could be true of us. And it can only be true by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and our meditation on what he has done for us, that we would be captivated by his love and become people of love. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the love that you've shown to us in your Son. We confess how poorly we have loved how poorly we have come to understand your love. We need your help to see Christ and his love for us anew today and each day, that it might shape us individually and as a church, that we would be known 
because of our love for one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.